If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 1 through 7 in just a moment. We've been going through our series through the book of Exodus, and we are right at the front end, right in the, going through, the midst of going through the Ten Commandments. And as we are with Israel at Mount Sinai, so to speak, we are essentially being confronted with the reality of God in his person, his character, and most especially his holiness. And so I thought it would be helpful to have a standalone sermon on the doctrine of God's holiness to be preached in conjunction with our series through the Ten Commandments so that we'll be bearing these things in the back of our minds as we read and study and think through all ten of the commandments. Many of you will know the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. He spent much of his ministry emphasizing this idea that the great need of the church in our day was to recapture a proper understanding of the holiness of God. Sproul once wrote that the failure of modern evangelicalism is the failure to understand the holiness of God. Not until we take God seriously will we ever take sin seriously. When we understand, he goes on, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Close quote. So here we are. If we are going to understand the Ten Commandments rightly, if we are going to understand ourselves rightly, if we're going to understand God rightly, and how we should live in light of our redemption, we must begin to grasp something of God and his infinite holiness. And Isaiah 6 helps us tremendously in that regard. So, First, let's read God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing as we study it together. Isaiah 6, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Beloved, take care how you hear it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us today. May he write its eternal truth on every one of our hearts. Let's pray. O Lord, before us is your word. Open our hearts, open our understanding that we may receive its truth, 
knowing and bowing before you in your glory and in your grace and that we would come to know you as you come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now that, that opening clause in this familiar passage of Isaiah 6 is one to which many of us are well accustomed, I suspect. One which we perhaps gloss over without giving it much thought. But you see, to the Israelites, to the people in Isaiah's day, that would have been a phrase fraught with fear and sadness and foreboding. It's an opening clause that's juxtaposed where it is in order to make sense of all that's about to follow from Isaiah's pen. If we better understand the context and the weight behind what Isaiah says here, it only serves to heighten the impact of all which follows. For example, what if I were to say to you, December 1941, Pearl Harbor. November 1963, Dallas, Texas. April 1995, Oklahoma City. September 2001, New York City, the Pentagon, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. How about a little closer to home? March 2023, Nashville, Tennessee. These are dates with which Americans resonate, and to even mention the dates and locations, your mind immediately goes to the tragedies which took place. The attacks, the death, the panic, a nation in mourning, a sense of helplessness amidst chaos, a collective frightened looking around. What do we do? What's happening? What happens next? What is going on? In the year that King Uzziah died, it's like that for the Israelites. King Uzziah's story, you may know, it's recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Now, King Uzziah, his name means my power is Yahweh. Uzziah, my power is Yah, Yahweh. And what a reign he had. It began with such godliness. 2 Chronicles 26, verses 2 to 4, it says this. Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. So his reign began as the young king pursuing God under the guidance of the prophet Zechariah in his word, striving for godliness in his own life and the life of his people, his kingdom, Judah. His reign was prosperous. Second Chronicles 26, verse 5, it says, He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. This man defeated the Philistines. The Ammonites paid him tribute. His fame reached the border of Egypt. We're told in verses 9 and 10 that Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and he cut out many cisterns and he had large herds. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. 
great prosperity. He's advancing the nation, security, wealth. And after decades and decades of Israel and Judah playing footsie with idolatry and political intrigue and plots and assassinations, finally, finally, here's a king. He's listening to the prophet. He's heeding God's word. There's reformation. There's renewed spirituality. There's growth in godliness. Ah, but then we remember how his reign came to such a catastrophic end. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16, following it says this, But when he was strong, Uzziah, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, the passage goes on to tell us that he had no right to do this. He was king, not priest. And the priests rebuked him. He was angry with them. And as a consequence, he broke out in leprosy. Right there in front of the priests in the house of the Lord. And Second Chronicles 26, verse 21 says, And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And we come to Isaiah chapter 6, and now the king is dead. The man who had been our great hope for reformation and revival, he had been so promising. And in the end, he botched it. He ruined it. What would that mean now for the people of God? The Assyrians, the imperial superpower of the day, they were gathering upon Israel and Judah's borders. There's danger all around. There are dark, threatening clouds on the horizon. Everything looks precarious and bleak. Israel's sitting around thinking judgment is surely coming. What do we do? What hope is there? Where where do we turn next? Oh, Lord God Almighty, what do we do? And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. Do you see that? Isaiah 6, verse 1. Many scholars believe that not only does Isaiah see a temple in his vision, in his mind's eye, but that he's actually in the temple. And and looking at the temple as a backdrop, there God fills his mind with this vision. Lord, everything's a disaster. What do we do? And Isaiah the prophet is in the temple. He's seeking God. He's, He's gone, you see, to the place where God has ordained to meet his people. In calamity, he's seeking the Lord. And how does the Lord answer him? Everything is falling apart, Isaiah cries. Madness, disaster, and pandemonium, economic, political, spiritual, chaos, a kingdom and world teetering out of control. And you see how the Lord answers? Verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. That's marvelous. And that's the first thing that we need to see here is the first point, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Now, I know here in Reformed and Presbyterian land, we say that a lot. Sovereignty of God. Sometimes we run the risk of despising or at least not truly appreciating something because it is so familiar. And we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God in Reformed circles. My, uh, my Pentecostal grandmother, if, you, if she were still alive, she's with the Lord now, but if you were to call her on the phone, and this always threw me as a child, every time you called her on the phone, 
when she picked it up, she wouldn't say hello when she answered. She'd say, praise the Lord. I always felt sorry for the telemarketers. They never knew quite what to do with that when this lady answers, praise the Lord, on the other side of the phone, and they're just trying to sell her insurance. Praise the Lord, said my Pentecostal grandmother. Well, if Reformed people did that, we might pick up the phone and say, sovereignty of God, providence of God. But let's not disregard something simply because it is so familiar to us. The sovereignty of God is a precious, precious doctrine. And it is this doctrine, this truth, that God places squarely in the face of an anxious Isaiah. God meets Isaiah's entirely legitimate fear about the surrounding chaos with the doctrine of his majestic sovereignty and omnipotence. In the midst of turmoil and chaos, people crave stability, a steady presence, and and the truth of that which is dependable and reliable. Trauma or accident victims, as well as medical experts, they'll tell you that when a victim, after they've witnessed something awful or they've been in a car wreck and they've barely survived, the biggest thing they want is to get somewhere safe. Now, sometimes their bodies will pass out and they'll, they'll sleep in a kind of forced, uh, forced mini coma, like a kind of survival mode. Their, their subconscious will take over and they'll dream, they'll tell you later, they'll dream about being back home or at their grandparents' house or their favorite school or back at their summer camp. Wherever it is for them that conveys comfort and safety, that's where their mind goes in the midst of that trauma. What does this vision show us in verse 1? What does it picture? It pictures a God in control, a reigning king, a sovereign potentate in his regal, regnant majesty. It's an image that conveys power and ability and unflappability. The Lord, as he's seated on his throne, he's steady and constant and reigning, and he's unfazed. That doesn't mean that he's unfeeling or uncaring or aloof or indifferent to the plights of his people. No, no, quite the opposite, in fact. But notice, God is not panicked. He's not worried. All things are in his control and under his sovereign care. Nothing catches him off guard. All things are going according to his sovereign plan. All that he has ordained shall come to pass. And in that is great comfort for the anxious heart. The Lord reigns. Uzziah is dead, and the Assyrians are coming. Things are dire, yes, but the Lord is still always, always, always on his throne, high and lifted up. Are things really so different for us? You turn on the news and we see the unending display of human depravity and brutality, the ravages and the ramifications of the sexual revolution. We are pulled every which way. Pressures are mounting. And I don't know for certain, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I sure tend to think that it feels like things are going to get a lot worse for Christians, at least in the short term. Isn't it easy to be fearful? To be only too keenly aware of our own profound inadequacy as we strive to be faithful when times are so hard and so dark. We need reminding. I love how one commentator put it. The Lord is on his throne. He has not abdicated his governance at all. Not at all. It's been said many times before that the doctrine, the truth of the sovereignty of God 
is a pillow upon which the saint may rest his weary head at night. Go to sleep, rest well, take heart. The trials and the dangers are real. No one said they weren't. They're absolutely real. They're absolutely legitimate. But he holds all things, all things together. The sovereignty of God, that's the first thing we see. But then secondly, we need to see the holiness of God. Look again at verses 1 through 4. I saw the Lord seated, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, etc., etc. Unfallen angels before God's presence, the seraphim, the seraphim. The name in Hebrew means the burning ones, holy, white hot, with unfallen, untainted by sin, majesty of their own. And even they, even they, these unfallen creatures must veil their faces before the radiance of God and his holiness. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, indicating humility and modesty. They know their place before the God of heaven. And with two they flew, the point of the image being that these were angelic servants who were ready to go at God's bidding. Go here and they fly. Come back and bring this message. They fly, doing the master's bidding. And verses 3 and 4. One called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, we tend to think of holiness, the holiness of God, primarily in moral and ethical terms. It's it's a moral attribute. And there's a sense, of course, in which that's absolutely correct. God is consecrated. He's distinct. He's set apart from all sin and from all wickedness. He's even set apart from his unfallen creatures. You see, the seraphim, they shield their eyes. So we cannot overemphasize the creator-creature distinction that God is wholly other. W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly other, entirely other, entirely separate from us. There is one sense in which his holiness can be understood to be the governing principle over all his attributes. It's not just that God is love, but it's a holy love. It's not just that God is wise, but it's a holy wisdom. It's not just that God exercises judgment, but it's a holy judgment. A thrice holy God who is entirely pure, entirely bright, entirely righteous, entirely perfect, entirely pristine and beautiful, entirely burning and blazing. And what can the seraphim do? It is indescribable, beyond mere narrative or prose, and so they call out, chanting, singing perhaps, holy, holy, holy. Again, R.C. Sproul famously said, there's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree. From the mouths of angels, where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy, or even that he's holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. It defies our conventions of language, even in Hebrew, to get at what God is, because nowhere else is anything described in such a manner. Even, even the holy of holies, that, that inner, inner, inner sanctum of the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt, what the King James Version calls the most holy place, 
It's called the Holy of Holies. In Hebrew, it's Kodesh HaKadoshim. It's only given two holies. It's the most holy place, and it only gets two. Where else can you go from there? It's like saying, very unique. One of our pastors back in seminary was very fond of pointing this out, and so am I, that the phrase is a little bit nonsensical. Unique means one of a kind. You can't be a little bit unique or very unique. There are no degrees of unique. Something is either one of a kind or it's not. It is like, to quote Monty Python, mostly dead or relatively dead. No, it is either dead or alive. A woman is either pregnant or not. She's not a little bit pregnant or mostly pregnant. She either is or isn't. Hebrew repeats things for emphasis. But there's usually that second repetition. In a, word, in a world without word processing, you know, without bold, underline, and italics, how do you convey something in ancient Israel for emphasis? You repeat it. That's why the Old Testament prophets would so often say, Woe, woe! Woe to the Babylonians! Woe to you, Israel, in your sin! Or Jesus, in the New Testament, he'll go on to say, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you. And yet, defying the convention of language, the angels, they go there in order to convey something of the reality of the splendor of this God. It's like looking at your speedometer and your car only goes up to 180 miles per hour, but you press it and somehow you manage to be going 575. God is holy and there's nothing like him. And he is holy, holy, holy. As one man said, there is a fullness of perfection in him that surpasses the borders and boundaries of ordinary language that not even unfallen angels can fully articulate. Verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. Ralph Davis, y'all may have heard of him, Ralph Davis said, glory is holiness with a wrapper around it. Glory is holiness with a wrapper around it, like a birthday present. If it's, if it's just a box from Amazon, it's fine enough. But if you put it in wrapping paper with a bow and a name tag, it's meant to be presented to the recipient. God's glory is his holiness packaged, wrapped for us to know, to be presented to us, for us to understand to some degree. It was presented to the angels, and you see their response it moves them to worship. <laughs> that's, what, that's what God's glory holiness should do. As one commentator said, God's glory is his holiness on a mission, seeking to ignite in your heart the same fire that burns from these seraphim as they adore the Lord. Close quote. Seeking to ignite worship and adoration. That's what it's supposed to do. But what does it do for Isaiah and for us? Well, that brings us to the third thing, the judgment of God. The judgment of God. The unfallen angels, they respond in worship. Even the inanimate objects of creation, did you notice that? They respond, it responds to the reality of God's holiness. Thundering, re reverberating at the reality of his majesty. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. But then Isaiah himself, verse 5, there's worship, 
There's a reverberation, a pounding of the very, very fabric of reality. And what does Isaiah say? Verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isn't this remarkable? The, these doorposts that are shaking and the smoke that fills the temple... The doors are trembling so the prophet can't cross the threshold. The place is so full of smoke that it obscures his vision. He can't see. He's being shut out. He cannot get near to this God. The seraphim, they're just over there with their reverent exclamations of worship. But look at Isaiah in the presence of God. Woe is me. I am lost. Actually, that that translation, lost, that little Hebrew word there, it's, it's a little anemic. Perhaps a better translation would be ruined. I am ruined. I am undone. I am silenced with the silence of the grave, as one pastor put it. Up till now, you, can, you could just glance back even to chapter 5 in Isaiah. Isaiah, in his ministry, he's been pronouncing a lot of woe upon God's people. Chapter 5, verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Verse 2, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. And maybe he thinks in an unsanctified moment, you know, I'm not so bad next to these people. These sinful people of God, good grief. But now here in the face of the blazing white hot majesty, of a thrice holy God, he sees the truth. And the word of woe that he had been pronouncing upon the people of God, he now now invokes upon himself. Note especially the emphasis he places upon his lips. He is, after all, a prophet of God. He speaks the words of God to the people of God. His mouth, his lips, were his primary tool of the trade, so to speak. Some prophet I am, he realizes. A man of filthy, vile, sin-stained lips among a people of sin-loving, putrid lips and hearts. I realize it now. I realize the reality of where we are. I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's very tempting to scurry past this uncomfortable reality that we feel in the text, the uncomfortable reality we feel in our own souls. Thank goodness there's forgiveness. Let's move on past the sin part. But we mustn't hurry too quickly. Because if we are to know God rightly, we will know something of his holiness. And in doing so, in doing so, we begin begin to rightly understand ourselves. And that knowing brings us to this place. That those who truly know God, they know we know this kind of moment very well. It brings us to that place of confession where we say, like Isaiah, woe is me. Look at my heart. Look what's exposed there in the brilliance of his holiness. What a, what a cesspool of evil. I deserve his judgment and curse. That's the truth about who I am. We must be utterly humbled under this reality. And therefore, there's nowhere else to go but to mercy. And that's precisely where this passage ends. So the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the judgment of God that Isaiah realizes, but then fourthly and finally, the grace of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is, as many commentators point out, basically the reverse of what happened with King Uzziah. Remember King Uzziah? He wanted to burn incense on the altar illegitimately, and in his sin he became unclean and he became excluded from God's presence. Isaiah, he begins by being excluded. He's he's shut out, the, the threshold is trembling, the smoke is obscuring his vision, he can't get near God. He's excluded. In your sin, Isaiah, you may not come near. But now... By God's own action, Isaiah is brought near. God comes to him via his angelic messenger and does for him what he could not do for himself. And God makes this ruined, filthy, undone, sinful prophet clean. Makes him clean. You can imagine Isaiah's heart sinking. He's seen the Holy Lord. There he is. He's on the throne. He's undone. And then an angel swoops near him. He's got to be thinking, this is it. (laughs) This is the end. This sinful man is about to be justly vaporized where he stands. God just sent his messenger to, to obliterate me, and that's what I deserve. Yet he's not. Instead, the angel, with tongs in hand, takes a hot coal fresh from the altar and touches it to his lips. This man of unclean lips. This man who deals in words with a ministry of his lips precisely at that place where he, of his own confession, precisely at that place where he is so sinful, the coal touches there, right there, right in the spot. And in the words of the angel, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. His sin dealt with. And as a man of lips and words, he is consecrated for ministry, as the Lord calls him into ministry in the very next section of Isaiah which we won't study today, but you can go on and read it this afternoon if you might like. Now think of it. Where did that coal come from? It came from the altar. What's the purpose of an altar? It's the place where sacrifices are offered. And here you see the benefits of atoning sacrifice are being applied directly, quite literally, to him. And is it possible, a moment ago, as numerous scholars have suggested, is it possible that when smoke filled the house, was it smoke from an offering being offered on the altar before Isaiah even realized his plight? Before he had even confessed his sin, a sacrifice was offered, and a coal from that same sacrifice is given to take his guilt away. Sounds a lot like the gospel. It's Romans 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, before we even were aware of our need, Christ died for us. Undone in light of God's holiness and yet full provision for salvation and full atonement has been made. In that great sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, slain before the foundation of the earth, before you were even aware of your plight, well before you were even a twinkle in your mother's eye. Sacrifice, atonement made for you, sinner. Beloved, there is no sin that you may have. There is no guilt 
for which there is not abundant pardon in Jesus Christ. And the thing is, we look no longer to the altar of the temple or the tabernacle, but we look to the cross, to that once-for-all sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus. Praise God. Praise God that he reigns and that he will never abdicate his throne. He is holy, and his holiness is terrible and it is awesome. He is the holy judge, and before him we do not presume to come in arrogance like Uzziah, but like Isaiah. We must tremble and confess our spiritual bankruptcy. But praise God, he is also the God of steadfast love and kindness. He is ready with mercy, and he is bursting with grace for all who come to him by Christ Jesus. Praise God for Isaiah 6. Let's pray together. Lord, you are a God of holiness who deserves our purest worship, fear, our reverence, and we bless you that you have made a way for us, us, we natively unholy people, unholy sinners, you've made a way for us to be brought near to the thrice holy God, our maker, and to be made clean. Bring us by the transforming grace of Christ, bring us to that place of adoration that place of glad wonder before you. Seal your word to our hearts this day, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen.